The sermon for today is from Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So this, uh, this morning is a beautiful morning. I've got uh, two kids, so I woke up to, well, frankly, I woke up at five o'clock in the morning to my son wanting to play catch with a balloon. Um, so that was really sweet. But uh, today is beautiful, but this week was like such a sad, tragic week for humanity, sad, tragic week for Americans. Uh, if you were watching the news, you saw um, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, celebrity global chef and celebrity fashion designer, both commit suicide in the span of 72 hours. And listen, mental illness and depression and despair, they are real, sad, tragic, horrifying things. And if you are uh, wrestling with that or know someone who's wrestling with that, I would like encourage you to talk to somebody, talk to anybody. The thing I wanted to talk about this morning is not that topic. Something about that situation teaches us something else about life. And here's what it teaches us, is that even if the world gives you every single thing it can offer, it will not satisfy your heart. See, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, both of them went from relative obscurity. Anthony Bourdain was a a, a broken down uh, prep cook who made its way to chef, who made its way to global CNN anchor who's loved around the world. And then Kate Spade, the same thing. She started out as a little Midwest girl who turned into a journalist, who turned into a fashion editor, who launched a brand and sold it for millions of dollars, right? But at the end of the day, everything that the world had given them was not able to satisfy their hearts. So this morning, as we turn to Psalm 122, the question we're going to be answering together is if the world doesn't, what is it that makes the heart of man glad? See, Psalm 122, it's a poem and it's a song. It's a song that Israel would sing as they would arrive into Jerusalem three times a year to worship the Lord. So it's a community song. It's a song about pilgrimage. It's a song about destination. It's a song about uh, yearning. Ultimately, it's a song about gladness. And so again this morning, the question we're going to be answering from Psalm 122 is, what is it that makes the heart of man glad? And so we start uh, by looking at verse 1. You'll notice that uh, the psalm opens with the psalmist saying, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. See, the house of the Lord was uh, this temple that was built in Jerusalem. And if you've read a little bit of the Old Testament, one of the things you'll find in there is that um, after the nation of Israel had come up out of Egypt and they, they get into the land of Canaan, for a while, God dwells with the people in the tent, but then eventually he has them build a temple 
smack in the middle of the city of Jerusalem on the top of a hill. And then the sweet story happens in 1 Kings uh, 8 that it says when they dedicated the temple, the Lord himself descended into this thick, dark cloud that filled up the temple. And then after that, all of the men of Israel were uh, encouraged, commanded, required to come up to Jerusalem three times a year into the presence of the Lord. See, the thing I want you to catch about when it says I was glad when they told me to come up to the house of the Lord is it wasn't about the pilgrimage. You hear that? It wasn't about traveling. For the psalmist, it wasn't even about Jerusalem. It wasn't about the the city or the festival. Frankly, it wasn't even about the temple. The thing that made the heart of the psalmist glad is the living reality of the presence, personal presence of God. You hear me on that? So I'll give you an example of this. We, uh, y'all, y'all know us, have gotten to know us pretty well. And my bride and I have a baby girl who is nine months old. She's the sweetest thing. But I'll tell you what, uh, if Jen is holding her, she's great. Y'all already know where this is going. As soon as I take her, we're good for about like 10 seconds. And then Addie girl just loses it. I mean, she, it, it's, um, and it's not a tantrum. Here's the thing. It, for her, you watch it. It starts as like a whine that grows into a whale. And then she starts flailing. And whether I'm holding her or set her on the ground, doesn't matter. She's just, she's losing it. And it looks like her heart is literally being torn out. But here's the thing about it. It's not enough for her to just know that mama exists. It's not even enough for mama to be looking at her, for her to be able to see mama. It's not even enough for Jen to be talking to Addie. Jen has to walk over close enough to be able to touch Addie. And as soon as she touches Addie, you know what? Baby girl goes from complete chaos to perfect peace. You get that? As soon as mama is close enough to touch Addie, it takes her heart from chaos to peace. And our hearts are the exact same way. See, if they're, we were made to be in the presence, the immediate presence of God. And if we sense any, any type of separation, any, any measure of separation, it feels like our hearts are being torn out of, out of their place. And you know, sometimes we're aware of it. Sometimes we're not aware of it. Sometimes it's so deep inside us that we're, uh, you, you, you're not even aware that it's there, but if you stop and slow down long enough, you go, ooh, like that, there's a groaning there. And what that is, is separation from God. See, the reason it made the psalmist glad to go up to the temple is because Israelites didn't all live in Jerusalem. They, they live scattered throughout the region that we now know as Israel, Egypt, like that whole center part of the Middle East. And so for them, God's presence was in a physical location. And so the fact that they lived far away meant there was separation from them in the presence of God. So even though it took pilgrimage, even though it took investment, it was a joy for them to have that gap closed. You see that picture? What the psalmist says makes the heart of man glad is to be restored to the presence of God. The second thing that I want you to see about what makes the the heart glad is where gratitude comes from. If you 
if you move to uh, verse five, one of the things that you'll see about this poem is that there's four verses on the front, four verses on the back. Poetry kind of communicates what it's trying to communicate through structure. So the very middle of the poem, right after saying, uh, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, it says why? It says, for there were set thrones of judgment. You know, judgment today uh, is a negative word. Just think about your use of it. It, it. it means cynical. It means critical. Sometimes it means hypocritical. A judge in our culture is someone who parses the technicalities of the law and then doles out punishments. A few years ago, I, I, I debated on, I, I should probably tell you guys, this is almost a decade ago. It's not, it's not immediate, but one day I was driving really fast. I was going uh, fast in a zone whose speed was low. And the eventual end of that story is I ended up in court. <laughs> and as I'm sitting there in court, what happens is one person walks up, explains to the judge what happened, why they did it, and then what happens? The judge sits there and decides, are they inside or outside the bounds of the law? Does it merit punishment or not? And how much is the punishment? So eventually we get to me and uh, the judge decides I'm very much outside the bounds of the law. <laughs> and what happens is I'm then given a fine, a class, and then I pay my fine, I take my class, and everything's good, except I now have that event on my driving record. Listen, the reason I'm telling you this story this morning is because that is exactly not what the throne of judgment is in Israel. You hear me on that? What I just described is exactly not what judgment is in Old Testament Israel. A judge is someone who would fight for the people, not punish the people. A judge is someone who would save the people. See, here's what happened. If you, if you go back to the book of Judges, what would happen is the nation of Israel would start wandering off after their own heart. They would get themselves in like a heaping mess. A neighbor would attack. That neighbor would take them into slavery. And then you know what would happen? The Bible says that God would raise up a judge. And that judge would fight the enemy of Israel, would restore the people to God and restore them back to the land of promise. See, those are the stories of when you, if, when you remember Samson uh, fighting with all the Philistines and he tears down the, the, that center building in the temple or, or Gideon who goes down with 300 people and defeats an entire army or any of the crazy stories that you read between Joshua and King David. See, a judge in Israel is someone who would rescue the people. So the reason that produced gratitude in the hearts of Israel is because this, it wasn't enough to just have the presence of God. They needed a particular type of relationship with him. So it brought them joy to know that God had given them a king and that he had given them that king so that they wouldn't be abandoned, but there would be someone who would fight their battles for them. 
If Egypt tried to attack Israel, which happened again and again, it was the king who would go defend them. If a dispute started inside the nation, it was the king who would settle the dispute. See, the throne of judgment was the care and rescue of God towards his people. So the second thing I want you to see that makes uh, the heart of man glad, the first one is the presence of God, but the second is the reality that he saves us. The reality that he fights for us and is for us. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He goes one step further. Read closely in the second half of verse five, and what do you see? Uh, it, it says the throne of judgment, and then it's almost like a hiccup. It's like a, it needs definition. It says it's not just any throne of judgment. It is specifically throne, the thrones of the house of David. So you wonder, what's the psalmist talking about there? See, for the psalmist, for ancient Israel, uh, there was this promise that God had given that while you have kings, eventually they're going to fail you. The temple is probably going to fail you. But there was a promise given to Israel that a permanent king, whose kingdom would endure forever, whose throne would endure forever, would be given to them and he'd be a descendant of David. See, for them... Gratitude wasn't just the present security of a king. It was the anticipation of final, permanent, complete salvation. They believed that God was going to give them a king that would finish all of their enemies forever. So that turns us to our second point. While your heart is made glad only in the presence of God and the fact that God fights for you, it's ultimately only made glad in the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, the fulfillment of the promise to Israel. So let's talk about how that works. Uh, you know, it's, we, 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 in this text in Psalm 122, um, you know, there's the temple in the middle of Jerusalem. And because there's a separation between the people and the presence of God, three times a year, the men have to go up, you know? Y'all know that verse in John 1:14 where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Greek, that word uh, dwelt is tabernacled. It's the word they used for the tent God was in before the temple came. It's another way of saying Jesus stepped into creation and templed among us. See, in the person of Jesus, see, in, in, the, in, the, in Psalm 122, Israel was called to come up to the temple, but they could choose whether or not to go up to the temple. You hear me on that? Some would go, some would stay. One year you'd go, another year you wouldn't. But ultimately it was up to you to go up to the presence of God. What John 1 says is that the temple pursues you. That in Jesus, God himself comes and dwells among us. And it's not your choice whether or not you're confronted by Jesus. Jesus decides whether you're confronted by Jesus. Let me say that differently. The person who's concerned about the separation between you and God is Jesus in John 1. So what happens when he draws near to us? When Jesus puts on flesh and gets close enough to touch us, what happens? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 says that he reconciled us to himself. 
I was telling some of the elders this morning, I was reading through John 1 this, this weekend, and um, it says that in the beginning, Jesus gave, the, gave being to everything in the universe. And then about 10 verses later, it says, then all of a sudden he was in the universe. And you're like, uh-oh. There, this, this, there was this distinction between the guy who created everything and the created stuff. And now all of a sudden you said he's inside the created stuff and that's, something's gonna happen, you know? And you wonder whether it's gonna be destruction and judgment, recreation, like what is gonna happen? And the book of John culminates at what? The crucifixion of Jesus. See, when Jesus draws close enough to touch us, he does it to save us. He reconciles us to God. And that leads us to the the second way that Jesus ultimately and permanently makes our heart glad. You know, Jesus Christ fights for you. Do you know that? I mean, in all of our baggage, in our relationship with God, all our baggage in the church, in all of our systematic, all the things that come with the trappings of of a life in a church, we can ultimately get wonky on some stuff. And we can get wonky on whether or not Jesus is for us or not. And what the scriptures teach is Jesus Christ fights for you. And I want to describe that for you. You know, it says that in the beginning, Jesus is the one who gave the universe its being. And then it says that he gave humans their being. And it says that Psalm 139 says he gave you your being, right? And then when we uh, fell into independence, collapsed into death, it says that the one who gave being stepped into that creation. And when he stepped into creation, he became a human. The ones who had fallen into death, he became just like them. And when you and I couldn't live the life God designed for us anymore, you know what he did? He set aside the rights he had as God and lived a perfect life as a human. He submitted himself to humanity. And then when our sin deserved death, do you know what Jesus did? He walked over, picked up your sin, put it on his own shoulders, and then was betrayed, beaten, crucified for you. But then after the penalty had been wiped away, you still weren't saved. If the story ended there, you would have been stuck, but you needed remade. So do you know what Jesus did? Jesus got back up out of the grave is what he did and ushered in new creation. And then now check this out. This is the crazy part. After coming and fulfilling the mission of redemption, it would have made so much sense after submitting himself to humanity for Jesus to then take off humanity and go back to heaven as whatever he was before he was human. I don't know what that is. Y'all might. You know, that's not what Jesus did. When Jesus went back up into heaven, he went back up in a once crucified, now glorified and risen body. And today, Jesus sits on the throne of heaven as a human. And what the scriptures say he's doing there is he's sympathizing with you. Every single anxiety you have, fear you have, joy you have, 
uh, triumph that you have, Jesus feels it with you. And then what he's doing with that is he's interceding for you. That means he's praying for you. Except this time it's the king himself dealing with the issue in the throne room. It also says that he's taking all those things, the joy, the anxiety, the fear, the celebration, your career, and he's working them together for your good. And then it doesn't stop there. It says that in his body of humanity, the one that was crucified before that's now been risen and is glorified, Jesus is coming back into creation again. And when he does, he's gonna give you the same exact body that he already has. And it doesn't stop there. He's gonna bring with him a completely perfect city that his throne is in the middle of so the two of y'all can dwell bodily together for eternity. Jen and I used to live in West Palm Beach only for a short window. So I don't know if anybody in here is from South Florida, but uh, we were there for a minute and then, and then, and then got out. Um, but while, uh, and we loved it while we were there. But while we were there, we, we got our golden retriever, Gracie, while she was a puppy. And one day I was driving home from work. Gracie is like this big. And Jen has her out front in the front yard uh, showing her to little, the little kids next door. And as I pull up, I'm watching this scene go down. And at the same exact time, I see this 130 pound Rottweiler come trotting around the corner. And before I can even get my car to our driveway, this Rottweiler has Gracie in his mouth. And I didn't even think. At like the, the kids were gone at that point. You know, they were out. At the instinctual level, I jumped out of my car wearing a suit, wearing a tie, and I tackled this Rottweiler in the middle of our front yard. Next thing I know, Jen had, I don't even know what happened. Jen's gone with Gracie. I don't even know where they are. There's no owner around, and I'm in the middle of our front yard laying on top of a 130-pound Rottweiler I just tackled by surprise. Fortunately, I had some canine training a little bit. So I like slid one hand down to his hip, slid another hand up to his jowls and like slowly got behind him and took him by his collar and drug him back home. So I'm, I'm alive today. <laughs> but there was a minute where I was like, oh no, I might not survive what I just did. Listen, I am not Jesus. And you all are not golden retriever puppies. Jesus Christ is the king of heaven. And you all are the church. You are the bride of Jesus Christ. You can imagine how that story would have been different if it was Jen that was in the Rottweiler's mouth. The reason I've rattled off that long list of everything that Jesus did is not because I want you to get the mechanics of salvation. This morning, I don't really care about whether you get the categories of redemption. What I want you to hear is at the instinctual level, if you'll allow me to say it that way, Jesus Christ fights for you. Every single thing it has ever taken 
to reconcile you to himself, he has done. And anything he will ever have to do to reconcile you to himself, he will do. The reason that produces gratitude in the hearts of people is because Jesus fights for you. Jesus is the judge of the church. He's the savior of the church. So I hope that's some pretty good news this morning. But it leaves us with a question. What do we do with all of that? Where does it leave us? And there's three things I want to show you that might not be uh, immediately obvious, but they're in the text. The first one is if you uh, just turn really quickly to verse three, what I want you to see is that the reality of the living presence of God always creates a unique community. Always. The fact that God dwelled in the temple meant the temple was built on the top of the hill at the dead center of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was literally, the city itself was attached to it. And everything about the city orbited around it. See, it was, it was the presence of God that gave Jerusalem its contours. And it's the same way for the church. It's the reality of, Jesus, of God's presence in and among you in the Holy Spirit, in the person of Jesus, the fact that he fights for you is what gives our community its contours. It's the reason we gather on Sunday morning. This isn't going up to the temple. This is being ushered in, in the body of Christ, into the presence of God himself. But remember, you don't go up In Jesus, God comes to you. And so the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so the reason we live in community group is because you're in the presence of God when you're with other Christians. The reason we confess our sins and hear the assurance of pardon is because you're in the presence of God. See, the, the, the reality of God's presence in the gospel creates a different community. But the second thing that it does is it calls for repentance. Repentance is a big $10 church word. What repentance means is this. It means to choose to go another direction. That's it. See, uh, for, for Israel, if a man was going to go up to Jerusalem, he had to make that choice. He didn't just live there, right? But at the same exact time that he was making the choice to go up to Jerusalem, he also had to be choosing to leave the town that he lived in and to leave his family and to leave his job, right? So the choice to go to the presence of God was also the choice to leave something else. At the same, there's not two choices. It's the same choice. You see that? Tracking with me? All right, so what I want you to see is that uh, when you flip back to verse one, when the psalmist opens and says, um, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. At first you wonder, uh, was he glad in the people who said it? Like, is that what he's glad about? 
or was he glad in what they said? And you don't know. And then you read the text a little bit closer and you know what you realize? You're glad, he's glad, not in the people and not in what they said, but in the fact that they said it to him. You catch that little, the move in the text there? He was glad that, that someone else had said to him, let us go up to the house of the Lord. And the reason is, verse two tells us he's already standing inside Jerusalem. See, this guy had already made a week's long journey up to Jerusalem simply to go to the temple of the Lord. And now he's there and he hasn't yet gone up to the temple of the Lord. (laughs) He just walked for a whole entire week to get there, but he got distracted by the city. I mean, if you'll allow sanctified imagination, he probably got distracted by the festival. And it took someone coming along and saying, let's go up to the temple of the Lord. See, it called for repentance for him to go up. He had to leave where he was and he also needed help doing it. Same exact way with us. See, when, when Jesus uh, accomplishes your redemption in the, in the, in the, and chooses to confront you through the proclamation of the gospel, it doesn't do you any good if Jesus reconciled you to himself and you don't believe it. Or it doesn't do you any good if Jesus fights for you, but you can't find rest in the fact that he fights for you. This week, I was really grumpy the other morning and I wasn't stressed and I wasn't sleepy. My bride had made breakfast and I had refused to eat it. I was hangry. See, it did me no good for Jen to have made me breakfast if I didn't eat it. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not penance. It's realizing that Jesus has already reconciled you to himself, but for that to benefit you, you gotta live in it, right? So the third thing I want you to see from the text is that because walking with Jesus requires repentance, it requires the community that the gospel creates. In, uh, we already talked about the, the, the move in verse one where um, his friends come up to him and call him to repentance. In your life, in life in this world, you're gonna have the instinct and the pressure to reject Jesus. And you're gonna have the instinct and the pressure to leave Jesus. That's just a fact. But when the community of God when the church has the gospel, has the presence of Jesus at its center, we call one another to go up together. And so we're corrected by one another. What I mean by that is someone else, if, if you'll dwell among other Christians, someone else will manage your repentance for you. 
we're buying a home right now. And um, thankfully our realtor uh, is in this church and is a believer, amazing. And the number of times where uh, my man has had to talk me off the ledge. And it's never rational. I mean, he is very rational, but he always points me back to Christ. He takes me from doubt back to faith. And then I just have to choose whether to accept that or not. You hear me? But I would be a mess if we weren't buying a home in community right now. So I wanna leave you before we break with just three applications. The first one is if you're here this morning and you're trying to figure out who Jesus is or what church is, or honestly, you're just not even sure why you're here this morning, because that happens. I just wanna give you a challenge. Find someone you know who is a Christian and ask them to read the book of John with you. And then all I want you to do is look at what it says about who Jesus is and wrestle with that yourself. Wrestle with that with your friend, but work out who you believe Jesus is and allow the scriptures to do that with you. The second is if you're here and you're in Christ, but you're not in a community group, join one. You are not designed to live life on your own. You are a y'all. You are not a you. You're a y'all. And so if you wanna walk with Jesus over the long haul and you wanna have insurance or assurance or provision against your instinct and the pressure to leave Jesus, you need to live your life with other people who are going up to Jesus. You hear me on that? And then the third is if you're in Christ and you're in a community group, when you go there, bring all of who you are. Bring your anxiety, bring your fear, bring your joy, bring your celebration, just bring all of it and give it to the people who are in your group and accept their help. Open yourself up to their counsel. I was just having uh, lunch with Joe this, uh, not yesterday, but the day before. And um, I just needed some good perspective. And Joe gave me some. And I had to choose whether or not to open myself up to it, you know? Make yourself at the heart level available to the people in your community. And then do the same thing with other people. Ask really good questions. And the only reason you're doing that is because y'all need each other to walk with Jesus over the long haul. And if your hearts are ever gonna be glad, it's gonna be because you've walked with Jesus. So what I wanted you to catch this morning is that the only thing that makes the heart of man glad is the presence of God and the care of God. And the presence of God and the care of God, the fact that he fights for you is only yours in Jesus Christ. And you can only live for a long time in the midst of that by doing it in community. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we just acknowledge uh, that you yourself are community. That Father, you articulated our redemption. Jesus, you accomplished it. And Holy Spirit, you apply it to us. 
that your church, your bride is a y'all, that we're a plural, but the center of your bride, the center of your church is you. You are the head of the body. And so we take great rest in the fact that you've accomplished our redemption and that you're continuing to work it out. You're continuing to wed us to yourself. And Jesus, we pray that you would make us a people who anticipate your return, that we set our hearts and our minds and our ambitions on the fact that you are returning very soon and that when you do, we will be raised to be with you, that when you do, you'll bring with yourself the death of death, the death of pain, the death of tears, that you'll bring life and you'll bring final and complete and utter salvation. And so we pray that you would make us a people who anticipate your return and who wait for you. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.